Who's the best of us? He's remarkable. We're only here because of him. And yet, yet here he is. He's on the ground. And he's sending a very unambiguous message telling us to come to his planet. Granted, but Edmund's data is more promising. We should vote. Well, if we're going to vote, there's something you should know. Brad, he has a right to know. That has nothing to do with it. What does? She's in love with Wolf Edmonds. Is that true? Yes. And that makes me want to follow my heart. But maybe we've spent too long trying to figure all this out with theory. You're a scientist, Bran. So listen to me. When I say that love isn't something we invented, it's observable, powerful. It has to mean something. Love has meaning. Yes. Social utility, social bonding, child rearing. We love people who have died. Where's the social utility in that? None. Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. I'm drawn across the universe to someone I haven't seen in a decade who I know is probably dead. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we should trust that, even if we can't understand it yet. So, not sure if you've seen the movie Interstellar. Anybody seen that movie? Great movie, really worth watching. That's a clip from that movie. And it explores the issues of love in a kind of a scientific, multi-dimensional context. And um, the reason I played that clip at the beginning of this um, this series is because I think when we talk about things like love, you know, we talk about love a lot here. And we talk about um you know, union or oneness or non-dual consciousness and, and that kind of thing, that that um, we and God are one, we and Jesus are one. When we talk about all those things, I think it can sometimes sound a bit, you know, kumbaya-ish, right? In other words, it's sort of a theory or it's some, it's abstract. We tend, I think, in reality to separate out the divine realm, if there is such a thing, and the material realm, if there is such a thing, uh, we, and and we live like those are two very different things, and and um, and so our spirituality becomes more about abstract abstract thought and thinking and beliefs, rather than in the integrated way in which I think we're increasingly becoming aware scientifically um, that our reality is. Um, this movie explores that sort of union and connectedness, connectedness, interconnectedness of all reality and um, in multi dimensions. And um, 
seems like the more we understand about our universe scientifically, the more we come to realize, actually, we are one. We are interconnected. We, we belong to one another. And even subatomic particles belong to one another. We have the phenomenon of qu quantum entanglement, which I don't begin to understand for one minute. Um, uh, but, you know, I've checked out Wikipedia a few times to sort of get so I can speak reasonably intelligent, intelligibly about it. But, um, you know, it's basically the, the situation where if two subatomic particles, particles interact with each other, they can be billions of light years apart on opposite sides of the universe, whatever the universe is, and still affect one another. They're still connected, which is just mind boggling. The more we understand, it seems, the more we, we understand we really are together. We really are integrated. We really are one. And the reason I mention that is because I think that's the um, essence of this letter, which we call First John, the first epistle, first epistle of John um, in the New Testament, the Christian scriptures. Um, that's really, I think, the, th the theme, that the divine world and the human world, the divine realm and the material realm are actually one. And they are embodied in Jesus, who, who was flesh and blood, but also the embodiment of divine reality. That's the essential message of First John. So we're going to explore that over the next few weeks. Today, I'm just going to give a brief introduction. We obviously don't have a huge amount of time left, but just want to do a little bit of a brief introduction to um, get at really several things here. Let's look at the first slide. We want to talk about when was it written? Who wrote it? Who were they writing to? And why did they write it? So we're going to explore that a little bit for a few minutes. Now, that's important, I think. And we often do this at, at, when we... Uh, begin a series on, on a book from the Bible, because it kind of grounds what we're reading in history. Um, it makes it real, I think, and it, uh, and it gives us some sense of context. Hopefully, we'll go away with some sense of context today. And context is going to help us as we seek to interpret, and more importantly, as we seek to apply it into our own lives. So, you know, it, it, it's, this is some of this will be factual, but it's actually very much a part of our own uh, uh, devotion, our own uh, spiritual um, response to what we're reading. Um, so let's think a little bit about um, when was it written? Well, we, we get some clues about when it was written from the text itself. And, and we'll talk more about that. You know, who it was written to will give us an idea of when it might have been written to, for example. Um, but um, it, this um, epistle is referenced by other historical authors. So there's a, a chap called Papias of, I think we've got a slide of him. Yes. Um, Papias, who was the um, a bishop of a, a, a um, uh, Hierapolis, which is a city in Western Turkey or what was then called Western Asia Minor. Um, it's called something else today. It's not called uh, that Hierapolis, but he was the bishop. And he wrote a, what is actually a very important work in church history. He, he wrote the exposition of the sayings of the Lord. So he wrote um, uh, five books, in fact, one, one whole work composed of five books um, about um the oral tradition of Jesus, the, the, or the stories about Jesus. And that's, that is lost. That book's been lost, but we have other later authors from the second and first, second and third centuries who quote that book. And in some of those quotes, we, we get uh, from Papias, we get clear evidence that he's referencing the first epistle of John. Now he wrote that, that work, the exposition around 95 to 110, um, in the common era. So after Jesus. And so we, we know that the letter of John was at least around at that point. So late first century, early second century. Likewise, Polycarp was one of the um, early church fathers. 
Um, he was the Bishop of Smyrna, which is, again, in Western Turkey, Ismir, it's called now. Um, Polycarp wrote a letter to the Philippians, uh, not to be confused with Paul's letter to the Philippians. And um, he references uh, content from the first epistle of John and his letter. And he was early second century. So we, we kind of locate this epistle, this letter, in the um, late first or probably more likely early second century. Um, and um, if we look at this map, it's interesting. So um, there's Ismir, which is Smyrna. Um, and um, Hierapolis was about here. Um, it's not on the map. You couldn't find a map with it on there. Um, but you can see it's Western Turkey, Western what was Asia Minor. And there's Ephesus. And Ephesus was very much associated with the Apostle John, the follower of Jesus, this brother of James, who were the sons of Zebedee, you know, as the Gospels record it. Um, and, when, and, and Ephesus was where he, he seems to have been based and, and his influence and his movement emanated out from there. So it's not surprising that these Western um, uh, Asia Minor characters would have been very conscious of this letter. Now, let's go back to our list. Um, who wrote it? Well, the obvious answer is John. But that actually might be a little deceptive because the, this letter, as well as Second John and Third John, and including the Gospel of John, they're all anonymous documents. Nowhere does it say, I, John, or, you know, they've become associated with John over the years um, from fairly early on. But we can't, we can't say that it was John the Apostle, the, the, the brother of James, the sons of Zebedee, that wrote this. Now, let's remember, for instance, that uh, John and most of Jesus' disciples, certainly the fishermen, would have been illiterate. So in terms of them actually writing something, that would have been um, highly unlikely. They could have dictated things, of course, but um, that, you know, to dictate a letter with all the rhetorical forms that this letter has, let alone a gospel with it, it, its incredible storytelling, would not really have been possible for a for a um, an illiterate person. Um, their influence could be there, so as eyewitnesses and you know, sharing stories and that kind of thing. But somebody else would have put this together, so it's unlikely to have been. Uh, the Apostle John that wrote this letter. Um, we, um, if you look at John's gospel, there's some similarities with this letter. Um, if you look at the second epistle and the third epistle, there's some similarities. There are also great differences between them all. Um, so it may be that it was not John, but a, a follower of John or somebody from what we call the Johannine community. In other words, the Apostle John discipled people, led people, influenced people, and there was a community of followers associated with him, um, probably based in Ephesus, or certainly where it seems to have grown from. And um, it may have been a person from within that community, or more likely, and this would be the widest held uh, um, understanding from scholarship, would be that it was probably multiple authors that wrote the gospel and the letters, um, but they were from within this tradition, this Johannine tradition. And so they're talking in a very personal way, um, speaking almost as if they are John, but really talking about the tradition that emanated from John. And that's probably what we have here. Um, who were they writing to? Um, so we've got to think here for a moment. Um, this isn't a typical letter. So it doesn't start, dear so-and-so, or start with the traditional uh, greeting or the traditional introduction that you get with letters written in the sort of Greco-Roman format of the day. Um, and it doesn't have a salutation at the end. So it's not, in, in many respects, it's not a letter. It's more of an essay, a rhetorical essay, 
making some very um, adamant points about Jesus and about uh, the theological view of Jesus. Um, it, it's it, but it, it has it, at certain points. It says in the middle. We'll read some of this later. It says things like "dear friends." Um, so it's obviously addressed to a targeted group of people, and that's probably why it's viewed as a letter. And it's included in a section of the Christian scriptures called the Catholic Epistles. Now, that means Catholic with a small c, universal, not Catholic as in Roman Catholic, but rather these are letters that were written uh, anonymous, usually anonymously, not entirely, um, but that were had a, a universal application. They weren't written to any particular church. For instance, you know, a lot of Paul's writings were the letter to the Philippians or the letter to the Colossians. These are open letters that don't have to seem to have any specific audience, but are making, in their view, very important points. And they, they, they sort of gather together towards the end of the Christian scripture. So we're talking here, James, first and second Peter, uh, the three letters of John and Jude. They're all quite different, I think, personally. This is just my personal opinion. They're all quite different to the letters of Paul. They're increasingly authoritarian. I think if you read them, they're very, they're much more didactic about you must do this, you mustn't do that, you must associate with these people, don't associate with those people. And you get this sense that they're written later after Jesus. Some, these are some of the, the um, later uh, writings. Um, and they're, they're written in a context where Christianity is spreading into um, pagan culture, into Greek Hellenistic culture. So it starts off as a, a movement within Judaism, but then breaks out into uh, the, the, the culture of the day and it's wrestling with how much, what, what should we do? What should we believe? Do we, do we integrate some of the, uh, pagan thinking into our Christianity in, in the ways that some had in, integrated Judaism into, um, the emerging Christian faith? I mean, Christianity was Jewish in this, initially. So there's all these debates about what's right, what's wrong, what should we believe, what's right practice. And you can see that as it spreads out, it becomes much more difficult to control. And um, and then some people are becoming a little bit more authoritarian in order to try and keep this movement together. So that sometimes these letters read a little uncomfortably. Um, for instance, in Second John, we're not going to look at that one, but it talks about loving one another. But then it also says, don't associate with so-and-so, you know, kick them out. And we'll see in this first epistle of John, um, there's reference to people that the author disagrees with as antichrist. You know, so... Um, there's, but it, but there's also this great emphasis on love as being the defining feature of following Jesus. So you get this sort of tension in these letters. And I think that's true of, of, of this one in particular. Um, and then, but so, so it's not really a letter as such. It's, it's included though in the Catholic epistles. And, but it's, we get an idea of who it was written to from the text itself. Let's just look at um, a passage here from the second chapter. Dear children, this is the last hour. So they, you know, this is written at a time when they were still thinking Jesus was going to come back imminently. Um, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is at the last hour. They went out from us but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Okay, later on, you know, a few verses later, it says, as for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. 
If it does, you also will remain in the Father and in, in the Son and in the Father. So the author here is saying, look, there are there are there are people who have left this movement because of their beliefs. They've they've sort of gone off on a on a tangent, gone off on a stray path. Um, and you know, you imagine this is that they've left the Johannine community, or they've they've had some kind of separation. Um, and so this the, the the target of this letter of this essay is the remaining ones. Don't be don't be tempted to go off. Don't be don't be led astray. Remain true to what you've heard from the beginning. For the um, the author of the Johannine literature or the authors, beginnings are really important. You may remember the Gospel of John. It says, "In the beginning was the Word." And it goes back to the foundations of the earth. I mean, pre time. Um, and this scripture, as we read, this um, epistle, as we read earlier in the service, um, starts off what that which you have heard from the beginning. And in other words, it goes back to the beginning of Jesus, the story of Jesus, who Jesus was. And, and we see this reiterated here. So they're right. This is a letter written to um, a, a community imploring them not to be led astray. Now, why did they write it? What was the purpose of the letter? Um and maybe we could um, check out the next slide. So um, I've tried to capture here in a sort of progressive order what this um, epistle is challenging. It's, it's, it's challenging anti, anti-messianic challenge, um, anti-messianic teaching. Um, I'm using that term because I think the term antichrist has, you know, all sorts of connotations to it. I don't know what, what that brings up to you, but it, it's... Um, Literally in the Greek, it's, it's anti-Christos. It's, an, and, and Christos means Messiah. So it's anti-Messianic. In other words, it's teaching that's not congruent with Jesus, not congruent with the Messianic kingdom way of Jesus. Um, and, um, and then it, it, it progresses to, um, a challenge to something that we could call Gnosticism and then eventually uh, the Docetic um, heresy, but we'll, we'll we'll come back to that. Let's look at another passage because we get some very definitive language about what the, what exactly this anti um, messianic teaching is. Um, dear friends, again, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Okay, we're going to get very clear here. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So this teaching that the author is saying is anti-Messianic, anti-Christ, is denial of the fact that Jesus came in the flesh. Now, Next slide. If we, so this is where the issue of Gnosticism comes in, because many people will say that this letter is written um, as a sort of an anti-Gnostic uh, rhetorical essay, um, possibly a letter. And Gnosticism actually, though, didn't really exist at this time. Um, it was an emerging um, Greek philosophically influenced thinking within first century Judaism and Christianity, it wasn't really until decades later that it was formed enough. And it's, it's a very diverse set of thinking, but it wasn't until a few decades later that it was formed enough to even call it something like Gnosticism. So Gnosticism is not mentioned in, in this letter in, at all. Um, but what Gnosticism was, was this belief, a fundamental belief, and I'm going to do it gross injustice here, but 
that the material world is contaminated. The material world is bad. Um, it's very dualistic. Okay, so material is separate from the divine. Material is bad. That's corrupt. We don't really want it. The divine world is pure, holy, wonderful. And those two things are very separate. And the way you, the goal of life is to leave the material world, to, to, to escape from our material existence and exp- experience divinity, to experience union with the divine. And we do that, we accomplish that through gnosis, knowledge, secret knowledge that we acquire through enlightenment. In the case of uh, Gnosticism within Christianity, that secret knowledge comes from Jesus. Um, and what this did over time, that influence led to the Docetic heresy. We, sorry, stay on the same same previous slide. Um, and um, the and, and Docetism was this um, sort of evolution of Gnostic thinking into how we view Christ, and it was a denial that Jesus was flesh and blood. Um, it was a denial that Jesus came in human form, but Jesus appeared as as an illusion, seemed to be um, human, but was really a spirit um, because human is bad. Material is bad. Material is corrupt. And that denial of Jesus's flesh and blood is what the author of John is challenging. Now, again, the asceticism isn't really... um, well, the, the first Council of Nicaea, I think, was well, 4th century, 325, something like that. That was the first time it was even labeled a heresy. Um, so it took you know, multiple decades, centuries even, for it to evolve into something that was coherent. But you see the beginnings of this thinking um, in the first century, second century. And that seems to be what the author of John is writing about and telling people to guard against. So... If we go on then to think through what is the, the first epistle of John affirming? So it's against all that stuff. But what is it actually affirming? What is it saying about Jesus? And there's really three themes to this, um, this epistle. It's, it's, it's a tricky epistle to break down um, because it has quite circular um, arguments and discussions. So it sort of comes back to similar themes. So you have to sort of, but if we break it down a little bit, we'll, we'll find it. It's about life. Okay. It's about God is life. Um, let's go back to what we just read earlier um, in the service. That which, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. You get the physicality here. Uh, so we've seen it. We've heard it. We've touched it. That, that's material. Jesus in the flesh. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. That's more, that sounds more divine, right? Um, the life appeared. So this life, this Jesus is God's life. This life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. <laughs> the emphasis here. So that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. And in God, there is no darkness at all. So this is the life of God. This is divine life. Jesus is divine life coming into the world. Human and divine. Integrated. One. Whole. This is the, this is the, the life that Jesus talked about in, um, Matthew, uh, in John's gospel, 
um, not John's letter, but Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. In other words, the divine life is to be experienced here and now in this human form, in this humanity we live in. Um, healing, reconciliation, love, acceptance, forgiveness between um, and within individuals, within families and between families, within cultures and between cultures, all that healed, whole, one life is possible now. That's why it's so important. We don't just think of Jesus as some ab- abstract mirage that sort of swanned into um, and was projected into people's minds, but but flesh and blood. And the author is saying this is really, really important because life the divine life, the real life, life to the full, life in ways we probably can't even imagine is for us now. It's not some future thing. It's not some afterlife. It's not something that we, we, we ele- get elevated to. It's here and now. And it's not secret either. It's not elitist. It's for everybody. Secondly, God is light. So we see Jesus coming into the world as light. Um, we were talking earlier about Jesus being this incredible example, incredible example, inspiring example. But also union with Christ means enlightenment. I mean, we do need enlightenment, right? We need our eyes opening. We, we need our minds opening. We need deeper understanding, um, deeper knowing. Um, um, that, that's all absolutely true. Again, it's just, it's not a big secret and it's not elitist. Um, let's look at this passage from, from the letter. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and in God, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son purifies us from all sin. So we, we, we need this light, and this light is, is not just something abstract, it's very real. It comes from union with Christ. Thirdly, God is love. And these last two themes, incidentally, light and love, are what we'll explore over the, over the next two weeks. Um, let's again look at a, a, a passage from the letter. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So that is love. Jesus is love embodied. Jesus shows us what God is like. And we can embody that same thing as we embody love, as we as we make the divine life real in the here and now, in this material realm, in this, in this reality that is all one and which is messy and corrupt and difficult and broken. But that's where love comes in. That's, that's where healing comes in. That's where redemption comes in and reconciliation. And in many ways, I think this letter is an appeal not to give up. Don't just settle for less than what Jesus came to bring us and sort of hope for the best in some kind of enlightenment where we are lifted out of this reality into another reality. No, that's not going to happen because Jesus came into this reality uh, and our experience of this reality because it's all one. Jesus just reveals that to us, reveals what we previously couldn't see. Um, Maybe the bank will close out. We just... 
couple more minutes here. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing a song to close out. But I just want to um, share a couple of things to sort of wrap this up as we head into the next couple of weeks. And as always, there's discussion questions each week. And just for this week, just check those out. There's sort of some introductory questions that sort of get around some of these issues to reflect on. But I want to um, talk about a couple of things. The first one, John's Gospel is... Um, so this is the epistle, first epistle of John, but the gospel was written at a time when there was division between the Jewish form of Christianity um, as it was emerging within Judaism and Judaism. There was conflict and, and some of the early followers of Jesus were being thrown out of the synagogue. So um, that, that's where the division was. That's why, in many respects, John's gospel was written to, to appeal to followers of Jesus to remain true and to encourage them in the face of persecution. Um, this gospel, sorry, this letter, First John, um, is not. Is, there's no Jewish conflict here. This is Greek conflict, if you like, or pagan conflict. This is um, emerging Christianity that perhaps is trying to concede something to Greek pagan thinking to make it more accessible. And you can understand why that might be the case, why they would want to do that. Compromise a little bit just to make it more palatable and more understandable and more people will, will accept it. Um, and you can, from that passage we read earlier, we see that there, there are people who have separated off saying we want to, we want to essentially be more Greek. We want to be more Gnostic, although they wouldn't have used that expression, more pagan. Um, and this is a letter written to appeal to people and encourage people in the context of that division. Now, I say that because I think when we read scripture, especially when we read John's gospel, there are elements of it that have been used over the years anti-Semitically, because there are certain passages that seem to be anti-Jewish because it's, it's um, speaking against um, Jewish religious authorities. And likewise, I think we can read this this uh, Gospel of John as being very anti-Gnostic people, very calling them antichrist, calling them this, that and the other. And I don't think that's the point. right? I don't think the point is that we need to be more polemic and we need to be more. We are absolutely right and they are absolutely wrong. I mean, that almost sounds a little bit Gnostic in its own right, doesn't it? Well, we've got some secret knowledge that others don't have. Um, and the reality is, I think. We can even fall into that trap ourselves. Think about what has happened to the message of Jesus. In many respects, it's come down to believe the right things about Jesus and you'll escape this material world and go to heaven. If you believe that Jesus died to save your sins and all the right things, secret knowledge about Jesus, then you escape. As opposed to what does it really mean to live this divine life in the here and now? How do we do that? So, you know, Christianity has fallen foul to some of this escapism. It's, you know, in many different ways. So we, we, we're not, we've got to, I think, be aware of some of the polemic in these writings and careful that we don't fall foul to those things. That's one thing. The second thing is, and we'll look at this final scripture. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've heard, which you've had since the beginning. Back referencing the beginning again. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. 
Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are because the darkness has blinded them. So what we have here, I think, is the, the bottom line. It's like love, even with the people that we disagree with, even the people that we see, who we see um, have different opinions and different perspectives. Love is is paramount. And we also see here, I think, that as we love people, this is what I think the author is saying. As we love people, we walk in the light. As we walk in the light, we love people. In other words, you can't really separate that out. As we love people, perhaps people that we find really difficult, light comes in and we begin to see differently, perhaps more clearly. And then we're able to love them and ourselves more because we have deeper understanding, more enlightenment. Love is the enlightenment that we're looking for. And as we love people more, more light comes in. And, we, and you can't separate these out. And it's a journey. We're on a journey. So we're not going to get there tomorrow. Um, but I think the author is saying here, keep walking in the light. Keep loving. Keep loving. Keep walking in the light. As we do that together, um, we, we grow and we become the kind of followers that Jesus was calling. We become more Christ-like. So I'm, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing a song together. Um, and I, I encourage you to go, you know, it, you could read the letter in about 15 minutes. Read the letter, get, get a sense of it, and then come back for the next two weeks and we'll explore it, explore it a bit more deeply. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for your light. Thank you that you are life itself. And we find it so hard to wrap our minds around this holistic reality, this, this oneness of our reality when we 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 separate it out so easily but god i pray even as we're on the short journey through this letter that you would bring us to a deeper understanding a deeper realization all that we might embody that love and embody that light more we ask that in jesus name amen let's stand together if you're able and uh, we'll sing the last song